Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Sentner Geology Podcast, Episode 31, Harley Bretts in 1922. Thank you for listening. I wasn't planning on doing a third episode on Bretts, and maybe you you are all Bretsed out if you've been listening to these, uh, but damn it, we're doing it. And I'll tell you why. Uh, as I was getting set up to record an episode this morning... Uh, fumbling around with a microphone and still not sure what I'm doing with this whole thing. Um, I got the laptop fired up, and uh, you know it was dark outside, kind of foggy, cold, etc. I just finished breakfast, and two emails came in almost on top of each other uh, at 5.30 in the morning. And one was from a guy named Eric Lindstrom, who we're going to talk about a little later uh, in this episode. And another from a guy named Mark. And both of these guys had brand new information about Brett's that was quite exciting, actually. So I shut down the microphone. I I didn't do the plan that I was um, planning on. And uh, instead, I kind of followed up by email with both of those guys and uh, asked if it would be okay if I uh, share a little bit of what they've learned about Brett's uh, recently. And... um, So I'm going to share that with you. That's the game plan for this. And it centers on uh, new uh, information about Brett's. Uh, From Eric, details about Brett's first field season, which I find very interesting, and I'm going to read you some of that new uh, info. Uh, Assuming you're interested in the topic, if not, I guess you can click this one off and go on to the next episode. But I'd like to start with uh, the other email. And I'm pausing now because i got to fumble and find this thing. Um, so this says, uh, Dear Professor Zentner, greetings. My name is Mark. I've enjoyed your geology video lectures for a few years now. Thank you very much. A while back, in 1993 and 94, my friend Charlie and I explored the notion of making a video about the Missoula floods. We were both working at the Boeing Motion Picture Unit, in Seattle, and both interested in natural history, so why not try a TV documentary as a side gig? The project did not come to pass at the time, but in doing the research, we found out that J. Harlan Bretz's son, Rudy, lived in California. After the appropriate calls and letters, an arrangement for an interview was made, and Charlie flew south to tape a conversation with him about his father. The upshot of all this is that I just viewed your Brett's video draft online and called Charlie to see if he still had those tapes, and he does. We thought that these might be useful uh, with your upcoming finished lecture. The interview is between one and two hours, recorded on Sony Hi8 tape with a Canon L1 camera and would need to be transferred to a more contemporary media for use. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. I'm leaving his last name out on purpose for whatever reason. I don't know. So this is exciting. Uh, I knew about Brett's daughter. Uh, she's referred to a number of times in the writing, and uh, she was his loyal secretary, essentially, later in his years. But the son, Rudy, is really never mentioned. And... Um, I've since Googled Rudy a little bit, and he's still alive. He's more than 100 years old, uh, living in Los Angeles, I guess. Uh, Rudy went on to a career with uh, TV and science programs for television. So 
I'm laying this down here with you today. I have no idea if we're going to be able to uh, convert this interview and get it into a usable format and possibly try to contact Rudy if he's still able to communicate uh, about his father, or at least uh, we can talk about this project that I've got going. But um, what Mark was referring to is I, I tried something new. Um, I used this microphone, now that I have a microphone, uh, and I recorded a draft of the new Brett's lecture that I'm working on, uh, pretty much just the slides that I had. And I narrated it and put it on YouTube and asked if anybody had any help, uh, suggestions on what to cut and what to save, what to expand on, basically. And also, I was just kind of privately hoping that there'd be a few people who knew some things that none of the uh, academic folks who've been working on the Brett story for years, maybe there'd be some fresh angles. Well, here's an example of the, the power of um, the internet and communicating with strangers. And it's all usually in the, in, in the name of kind of a voluntarily sharing information uh, for, for the greater good. And uh, I think f- people that are familiar with my work kind of have that sense that I'm, uh, I'm just interested in a good story and trying to share all this great geology work that's been done long ago. Uh, there's really no other motive uh, in my part. I'm not imaginative that way uh, to cash in, etc. That's just not in my DNA, I'm afraid. Uh, it's a shortcoming, or maybe it's not. Um, so for the rest of this episode, I'd like to share a few other people that I'd, I've run into in the last month or so that have kind of bubbled up out of the ether. And if you need context for what we're talking about, I encourage you to listen to the previous two Brett's episodes that we've done in this podcast series. So I guess let's go to uh, Vic Baker, who is easily the most well-known geologist uh, related to the Ice Age floods, uh, the, the hand-picked successor to Brett's, uh, the only geologist that I know that uh, dealt with Brett's directly. And uh, Baker was featured in the... Uh, Nova program on called Mysteries of the Mega Floods that you may recall from probably 20 years ago now. He helicoptered in on top of Steamboat Rock, etc., and had kind of a Indiana Jones-looking hat. Well, Vic is uh, revered in the geology world for good reason, uh, but he's also been very, very uh, supportive uh, by email in this project, and uh, we've known each other a little bit off and on over the years, and so... Uh, uh, I think he knows what I'm about and is happy to share some things. So I started emailing Vic some questions that were kind of along the lines of my interest. And let me give you a little taste of how helpful Vic Baker has been. Even though he's told the Brett story a million times and has done all this legwork, um, he's encouraging uh, this, this kind of new approach to telling the Brett story. So... Um, Here's Vic uh, by email saying, I sent him some clippings on uh, Brett's during his Seattle days. And uh, Vic says, uh, thanks for the news clippings, Nick. I know, of Brett's lo- uh, I know of Brett's long walks with Seattle high school students, but not about the news stories. The clips are indeed relevant to something I have put off for too long in writing about Brett's for the journal Geology. I was engaged to write one of the Rockstar articles and produced a draft for that. However... I didn't have enough about his early teaching career. That is something that is desired for the Rockstar series. Then he turned me on to a guy named Brian McDonald. 
Brian lives in Portland and is a descendant of Thomas Large, the high school science teacher in Spokane. And here's Vic talking about Brian. Uh, I crossed paths with Brian McDonald in Portland, and Brian did lots of background archival work on his great-grandfather, Thomas Large. I found my file of rather voluminous correspondence from the 1990s. Brian especially looked into the archived materials in Eugene, Montana, and elsewhere for letters that Joseph Pardee exchanged with Large, etc., Most of this was about Large's ideas about glaciation on the plateau and his theory of Glacial Lake Spokane. There is much less material on Large and Brett's. The latter made some brief visits to the plateau, just after Pardee spent much of the field season there. According to the Large correspondence, Pardee developed an idea about subglacial flood erosion, carving parts of the channeled scablands, and Brett's initially ascribed the same areas to glacial action. So at the time, Party was talking about water and Brett's was talking about ice. However, this initial work by Brett's was based on very limited field work and he never published anything about it. It was subsequently that Brett's began his extensive field work that led to the Spokane flood hypothesis. I last saw Brian in 2002 where I had lunch with him in Portland, etc. Well, the internet's an amazing thing, so I have found uh, Brian and connected with him by email. And Brian says, I met with doctors of uh, Richard Waite and Vic Baker within a week or so of each other 20 years ago. They both encouraged me to dig into the correspondences that I had. I dumped all the details on Dr. Baker when Pardee's widow died and she gave a large sum of money to the Geological Society of America. Baker was called on to summarize Pardee's life, and it seemed the time to spring the details that I had accumulated and some that I had just come down to me. I will try to get some images to you. So now this is Brian trying to give me some help. Again, all this is just voluntary stuff that people are, are happy to help. I'm so grateful for all this. Hopefully they feel like they're getting something back in return. Time and fate has been cruel to some data. Uh... Large's widow gave a copy of Brett's Cooley book to a fellow teacher with correspondence tucked inside. John's mother had a a photograph of Brett's and Large tucked inside Professor Allen's book. I never have seen the photograph. John's mother lent the book out to an unknown personage with the photograph still inside. Our second cousins made it to Portland with a supposed photograph of Large and or Brett's, but I could not find it when the time arrived. They found the photograph in the car on arrival back home, but again, I've not seen it, and I'm not sure if its current location is known. I have Pardee's short 1921 field notes, but he apparently checked out his 1922 field notes in the 1950s, and now they are apparently lost to history. So, um, Brian McDonald, descendant of Thomas Large, uh, is trying to gather a few good photos, and that's an example of how difficult, of course, it is 100 years later to track down some of this information. So this is like half genealogy and half um, geologic pursuit. The John he's referring to is a guy named John who lives in Ellensburg and works on campus uh, one building away from me. I mean, these, these, these intersections, uh, as we were talking about last time, continue to be quite astounding. 
Uh, I'm going to go back to Vic Baker for a second, and then we'll get to Harley in 1922, which is the main reason for this episode. Uh, Here's Vic basically by email after I asked him, uh, how did... Uh, Do I have the questions? Yes. Here's the questions I had for Vic by email. Uh, Vic, how did your Brett's meeting in Chicago get arranged? Was there just one 1977 meeting with his daughter Rhoda taking the photo? Uh, Number two, uh, Vic, all modesty aside, how instrumental were you in getting Brett's the 1979 Penrose Medal? Was it a one-man crusade to get Brett's the recognition? And that's fine. And here's uh, Vic's, what I think is very interesting, response. Nick, thanks for keeping me up on all that you're finding. Best wishes uh, as you prepare this lecture. You asked about my contact with Brett back in the 1970s. I actually began communicating with him in the late 1960s when I was doing my Ph.D. dissertation research. I had hit upon doing quantitative hydraulics and sediment transport work related to the channeled scablands and started up a letter communication with Doc, quote-unquote, at that time. He provided suggestions on what I would study and even edited my dissertation. The Penrose Medal affair was a bit of a saga. There was an initial attempt to get the medal for Doc in the late 1960s after the uh, INQA Congress, which is a, a field trip, famous field trip, a bunch of bunch of hand-selected geologists. Uh, that was led by Don Trimble of the USGS, who had worked on the geology of the Portland area. It was unsuccessful. Around the mid-1970s, following publication of my Ph.D. work as a GSA Special Paper 144 and some of my other papers, interest picked up again. I was engaged by the Quaternary Geology and Geomorphology Division of GSA to put together another try for the medal. I assembled a package with a lot of supporting letters from very prominent geologists. I have a file buried somewhere that I should consult on this. Despite exceptional letters from such prominent luminaries as M. King Hubbard and Francis J. Pettijohn, GSA did not act on that nomination, supposedly because they could not find the record of Brett's ever having been a member. He was so old at that time, in his late 90s, that it apparently had been assumed there was no longer a need for it. At any rate, this was a huge embarrassment to the awards committee. And Doc had a conspiracy theory about it all, but I'll save that for another day. The short story is that the next round, the third attempt, turned out to be successful. The award was presented at the 1979 annual meeting. There's more to that story, but that can wait until I get to all my files. Doc was certainly in communication with lots of geologists in the 1960s and 1970s. Most were his former students. He had retired in 1947, but continued teaching his field courses for long after that, and many University of Chicago students attended that, gaining a profound experience. Uh, I hope this brief recollection helps. I really should dig up that stuff to present the whole story. So thanks to Vic for the help. The rest of this episode will be devoted to a guy named Eric Lindstrom, who actually came over to Ellensburg a few years ago to visit with me about this book project on early Brits. Um, And how can I say this? I'll just say it this way. Uh, So Eric is a retired professor, um, not sure in geology, but very, very interested in geology. He lives in Olympia. And uh, he's totally fine with me uh, sharing what he has learned thus far. Basically, Eric has 
devoted incredible amounts of time to researching Brett's, especially early Brett's, before the famous Channeled Scablands debates, which was my instinct as well. And to be honest, I forgot meeting with, about meeting with Eric three years ago, so he may have planted this seed in my brain, and I, I honestly forgot about it. <laughs> anyway, he's been super helpful and super encouraging. And basically, Eric got to a point where he was so bogged down in the details, and still really is still bogged down on all the detail that he was able to find, that he's looking for a narrative. He's looking for some sort of... Uh, uh, arcing story or two that he can then hang all this detail. And of course, that's an issue for many of us who are trying to put these things together. Um, so Eric actually took the time to visit the University of Chicago archives and went through all of Brett's old journals. And that's where much of this detail is coming from that he's sharing with me uh, very generously. And even went to Albion College where some, there was some Brett's material from... Uh, Brett's student days. So gosh, there's a lot of email stuff from Eric. How can I build this up before we get to what he sent me this morning? Uh, maybe I'll do this. Um, oh yeah, okay. So Eric watched the draft that I told you about. Uh, never. Uh, I think I sent him the draft, actually. Dear Nick, thanks for sharing the draft of your new lecture with me. I watched and listened to the entirety of it tonight and made quite a few notes. It's great you're tackling this, and I think bringing the focus home to Washington is a great idea. I'm pretty sure I can provide you with some information that will help you tighten up a number of spots. I've been working on the 1922 field trip details for the last week. I'll shoot, I'll shoot off a digest of that to you in a day or two. Um, an area you... Eh, I'll skip that. Ah, no, I won't. An area you might look in, wish to look into is where Bretz's hypothesis stands today. As you know, he first hypothesized that the landforms across the entire Scablands were formed essentially at the same time, i.e., he essentially believed his evidence pointed to a single catastrophic event of extremely short duration. For the most part, it was this concept that proved most dip difficult for the non-catastrophists at the time to accept. Time and subsequent developments caused him to accept first a few and finally many such events taking place over long periods of time as the agents by which the channels, the scablands have been formed. Sonicson, also a guy who's been helpful, by the way, who wrote the biography of Brett's. Sonicson mentions this fact in his book, and rightly so. The visual impact of the structure of Drumheller channels, for example, is somewhat different when one understands that the landforms were created not by one, but by dozens, perhaps hundreds of flood events. A few of them monumental, but many others significantly lesser size and scope. And there was something else I wanted to share with you before we go to the big email that I received this morning from Eric. And I guess this is it. Uh, all right, this is context for what he So this is this morning. Okay, thank you. Hey, Nick, the information that the calendar that I have was taken directly from the original journals donated to the University of Chicago after Brett's died. One of the notebooks is from 1922 dated July 26th to August 13th. However, there were at least two notebooks for the period, if not more. The pages themselves have been removed from the jackets, and I found only the first 1922 jacket in the files. 
It's commonplace for writers to lean heavily on the material in Memories, that was Bretz's unpublished autobiography, or the work of Alan Burns and Burns or John Sonicson. Uh, Alan Burns and Burns wrote Catastrophe on the, of the, in, the, in the Cascades. I believe that's the title of it. That also talked about Bretz. I know I have. The level of scholarship is high and the documentation extensive, particularly where geological insights are concerned. Without exception, however, current renditions of the Brett saga are tightly focused on the 1923b paper and the resultant controversy. Events pre and post are essentially treated as secondary contextual elements. Perhaps these writers have been trying to define Bretz's character on the basis of his work on the floods? I think the foremost questions in their minds are related to whens, wheres, and hows of his discovery. For my part, I've been focusing on the whys as much as anything else. My research questions continue to be, why was Bretz able to recognize, in the landforms of the Scablands, forces of nature his contemporaries could neither see nor readily grasp? Which is to say, I've been trying to understand Bretz's work on the floods within the context of man's overall character. That's made it necessary to delve into his total personal and professional development, particularly during the early portions of both. Perhaps that's why my writing has run into so tall a wall. Eric. So yes, Eric has confessed that he's kind of stuck. He can't quite get back into... Uh, things rolling and his juices are not flowing as they were. And I've mentioned to him a number of times by email that I'm hoping that my little attempt, which is a totally different medium than writing a book, I'm hoping that my little flurry has uh, will kind of unlock his block and get him back rolling. He's hoping to finish this book and publish it uh, in 2020. Um, so if if he comes through on that, I certainly hope so, and uh, it would be great to see uh, this in print, and maybe you're primed uh, to, to purchase the book if you can find it for Christmas in 2020. Who knows? Okay, without further ado, I'd like to just share with you what I think is tremendously exciting, because instead of the general stuff that I've been peddling, and even the general kind of story that I will be talking about in this April lecture for YouTube... Um, Eric is, you know, working with these original journals, and so he's getting down to this incredible detail that I think uh, is ideal for really putting ourselves back into time and place with Brett's. So this is Eric kind of condensing a few things and sending some notes directly to me, kind of in his voice, and I'll try to pick and choose as I kind of scan through this document for you. Again, this is the thing that came in just a few hours ago. Nick, the following material was condensed from a couple of draft chapters I completed some time ago. I worry that you may already have a lot of the material and that this is far more detailed than you might prefer. If so, please do not hesitate to say so. When I put together my latest draft of the entire story, I dwelt on 1922, that outing, because in my, at least in my mind, it was extremely significant. One of, the major, one of the major turning points in Brett's career, and to my way of thinking, the last. Work subsequent to that study seems mostly focused on gathering, detailing, and selling of the big idea. His work in the caves notwithstanding, which happened later in life, the Scabland problem was his last great brain event. 
his last moment of creative insight. Of course I am an artist and naturalist by temperament and training, not a geologist, in which case I might think otherwise. So here we go. It's July 26, 1922. That's a Wednesday. Brett's is in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. Brett spent the day in the G.D. Francis Quarry, uh, just a little bit east of the Milwaukee Road Rail Station. The objective of his study was the Schoonmaker Reef. It's unlikely he had undergraduate students. It's likely that he had undergraduate students with him from the University of Chicago. The site was often used by faculty and students from the University of Chicago. Bretz had just wrapped up a month-long field course for undergraduates at Baraboo, Wisconsin. Hey, we talked about that in the last episode. Uh, Bretz eventually. T- turned that into a September course, but uh, early on in 1922, he was teaching it uh, in the dead of summer and was only days away from starting a second summer course, this one for a handful of grad students. Uh, It was slated to begin on Thursday, July 27th, and was supposed to be held somewhere in the North Cascades of Washington, where Bretz could get his students up close and personal to a live glacier. Getting there would require the use of park of pack animals and a guide, plus all the provisionary and other logistical preparations related to such an ambitious outing, a costly enterprise. As it was originally planned, a minimum of eight advanced students would be required for the course to make. Bretz's notes for the month-long fieldwork, as it actually took place, suggest no more than five students were actually involved. The university's enrollments had not yet fully recovered for the impacts of World War I, and filling courses was a constant problem, particularly at the graduate level. The shortfall in students and attendant loss of revenue may have been the main reason Bretz and his students ended up spending the month in the Scablands instead of the Cascades. I believe Plan B was already in Bretz's satchel when he left Chicago for Baraboo the month before. He and his chair, Salisbury, both knew the course was facing a possible shortfall of student tuition as early as May of that year. At the time, the bulk of the fieldwork support came directly from tuition. I I further believe that Bretz had been anxious and determined to break into the Scabland problem for quite some time, perhaps as early as 1918. I'll develop more on that idea in a digest covering his academic and field work from 1914 to 1922. I can't wait, man. I cannot wait. That's me talking, not uh, Eric. Exactly when Bretz arrived in Spokane, assembly point for the course is unclear. A brief entry in his notebook from the period shows he initially intended to begin fieldwork on August 1st, the first formal day of the course. That was just five days after he stepped out of the quarry in Wisconsin, and two days, at the most, after he stepped down from the train in Spokane. However, the group did not actually take to the field until early morning August 3rd, when they boarded a commuter train for Liberty Lake. 24 days of grueling fieldwork followed. That fieldwork was conducted more or less as a 1,000-mile reconnaissance along the perimeter of an 8,000-square-mile portion of the Scablands. That's an area roughly the size of Massachusetts. Three specific locations served by the Great Northern Railroad and its subsidiaries served as hubs for the majority of the research. And then Eric is going through day by day, 
figuring out where they went. And I won't, I'll spare you the details there. What kind of time have I got here, by the way? Oh, yeah, we're doing okay. I've got about five minutes left. Um, let me give you a sense, especially if you know Eastern Washington tiny towns. And that's all of three and a half of you, but let's try anyway. Um, the first week of August, Bretts and his students set off on a five-day hike through the northern portion of the Steptoe region. Their route was as follows. August 3rd, Liberty Lake to Rockford. August 4th, Rockford to Tekoa or Tekoa. August 5th, Tekoa to Granger. August 6th, Granger to Rosalia. August 7th, Rosalia to Ewan. <laughs> They're on foot, man. And it, it, I, I know a few of these places, Marengo in particular, and these are lonely, lonely places out in the middle of nowhere, uh, even today, let alone 100 years ago. Um, August 9th through the 12th, Bretts and his students traveled from Spokane to Soap Lake by train, collecting data and route, as well as the many stops in between the two hubs. From Soap Lake, they headed south and then east. Kneppel, which is now Moses Lake, uh, they were in the Moses Lake area August 10th. August 11th, potholes south of Moses Lake and Drumheller Channels. Okay, there we go. So August 11th is the precise date uh, in 1922... Uh, that Brett's first walked through the Drumheller channels with three of his students, or five of his students, I guess. That's sweet. Uh, August 12th, Warden to Cheney. So again, this looks like a combination of train, get off the train, hike and camp for a few days, grab a train somewhere, go for a while, hike, etc., and maybe come back uh, to Spokane occasionally. Another hub was Cooley City. Home of Carl Oquist, August 13th through the night through August 24th. Cooley City served as a hub for traverses of key areas up and down the Grand Coulee, conducted mostly on foot, but with the aid of rail and other transport when available. So they go Cooley City to and from Soap Lake, which means they're going down the Grand Coulee, the lower Grand Coulee. Cooley City to and from the Columbia River. Uh, that means they're going on foot up the the Upper Grand Coulee. Coulee City, that was August 19th to the 24th. Coulee City to Trinidad via Moses Cooley. Man, this is so great. So these guys are walking from the head to the foot of Moses Cooley on August 25th and 26th, 1922. And then possible traverses of Potholes Cooley and Frenchman Cooley on August 25th, question mark. According to Bretz's notes, he was on a train from Wenatchee to Seattle on August 27th, almost a month to the day after he left Wisconsin for Spokane. Fast forward to mid-afternoon of December 30th, 1922. Okay, so we're done with the 22 field season. He's compiled all his field notes. He's put a little presentation together. So in December 30th of 1922, the first time that Bretz is actually publicly presenting this Scabland stuff, Bretz delivered a brief presentation based partly on that summer's fieldwork before members attending the 35th annual meeting of the Geological Society of America. Titled Glacial Drainage on the Columbia Plateau of Washington, his 10-minute talk fell between abstracts delivered by Frank Levert, 
Glacial Deposits of Missouri, and Glacial Lake Problems by George H. Chadwick. The paper was generally well-received, and even O.E. Meinzer, chief antagonist at the famed Cosmo Club meeting, deemed it excellent. A month later, January 1923, Brett submitted the major paper based on his presentation to the GSA, but they didn't publish it until September. By that time, Bretz had completed a second and more tightly focused study of the Scablands. It consumed just over 60 days, the entirety of both summer sessions, and was in the process of publishing the results in a paper titled The Channeled Scablands of the Columbia Plateau. So that was late in 1923. Uh, I could go on. I'm reading all this really for the first time, to be honest. I'm getting pretty jazzed as I sit here and read. Are you jazzed right now? Don't answer that. I'm guessing not many people are fired up at the moment. But to me, if you know these places and you're a fan of history, it's so fun to get down to this gory detail. I'm scanning now. I'm scanning. Uh, Let's finish with this. This is still Eric talking now, maybe a portion of his uh, manuscript. In his excellent book, Bretz's Flood, John Sonicson has Bretz's aha moment taking place at Rock Lake in the summer of 1923. He provides a well-detailed and compelling description of the moment when Bretz may have envisioned, for the first time, a massive torrent coming at him from the north, rolling across the landscape and bursting forth in a series of colossal swells 300 feet high and 5 to 10 miles wide. I love this narrative, says Eric. It appeals to my romantic tendencies, and it may well be accurate. However, my own research suggests that that fateful moment took place sometime between late August and mid-October 1922. I also suspect that instead of sitting on a rock in the Scablands, he was standing at a desk in the geology lab at the University of Chicago, deeply involved in locating elevations where his calls had drained various sections of the Scablands. A great deal of Bretz's work on Puget Lobe had developed from his ability to locate and plot the discharges of multiple glacially trapped lakes. In a relative sort of way, he had been able to describe the sequences and timelines involved in the emptying of those lakes. Both were determined by the rate of the overall ablation of the lobe itself. For literally years, Bretz had assumed that something similar to this the emptying of a large individual lake system, were responsible for the water work which had occurred at various unique locations around the Scablands. I kind of get that. I don't really, though. Uh, so we can't finish on something that I barely understand. We Instead, we're going to finish with this. I'd love to know which students he took with him on both outings in the early 20s. It might be possible to study their archives, should such exist, and gain more direct insight in how the work progressed, and to what degree Bretz was able to use their research in conjunction with his own. He typically gave his advanced students a great deal of autonomy in the field, and whenever possible, broke them down into small teams. In most cases, these students were quite mature, and many had already been working in the field before returning to the university for a master's or the terminal degree. Many would have been capable of solid field work on their own. You know what? That is a great place to end because the podcast episode I was planning on recording today involves 
teaching a field class, my experiences teaching a field class, using topographic maps, which today are kind of a dinosaur, but the previous hundred years had been the main way to operate in the field. So with that, we'll look forward to the next episode talking about topographic map and field work. And for this episode, I thank you for your attention. I realize this one's not for everybody, but if it's for you, it's for you. I love you. Goodbye.